The following program is brought to you by Total Theater Online. The views expressed do not necessarily represent those of the staff or management of WGBB. You're listening to the station that serves your community, 1240 WGBB. And now it's time for Dave's Gone By with David Lefkowitz. Well, there goes the neighborhood. Welcome, everybody, to the 136th episode of Dave's Gone By, brought to you by Hewlett Minuteman Press and Performing Arts Insider Theater Magazine on this Thursday, July 21st, 2005. Now, a lot of people think Dave's Gone By is essentially a theater show, which is not true, because it's an everything show. It's an hour of music and sketches and monologues and interviews and all sorts of stuff. Some of it about the theater, but there are weeks we don't even go there. Most weeks we do have a segment called Inside Broadway about what's happening on and off the stages of New York, and I do have guests from the theater world on fairly frequently, like uh, people like Lenore Zayn, who was doing a Marilyn Monroe show last month, or Paul Bukok, whose solo performance Bukok's House of Baseball runs at the Flea Theater through this weekend. The New York Times didn't like it, but every other review I've read of the show was very positive, so congrats to Paul on that. And over the years here, we've had everyone from director Karen Coonrod to actress Karen Young, and a whole bunch of theater critics. In fact, we did a three-hour Tony Awards special back in June, with half a dozen critics pitching in and giving their picks and pans of the last Broadway season. So, okay. You can be forgiven for thinking this is a theater-centric show, even though it is more than that. But tonight, we do once again dip into that well. And in fact, this one should be especially fun for real fans. I mean, casual theater-goers and people who just have a passing interest in Broadway and off-Broadway won't be bored, I hope. But this is really a conversation for folks who love and care about the form, the history, the beauty of theater, and especially Broadway musicals. Musicals aren't like novels. They're not a solitary pursuit. Some guy doesn't sit down, write the script, pop in some songs, and boom, it's a show. Well, maybe Frank Wildhorn, but even then, There's so much collaboration, so much revision, so many compromises, so much to go right and wrong between the page and the stage. My guest tonight, David Spencer, has been there, done that. No, he hasn't done a Broadway show, but he did an off-Broadway one, a 1992 hit called Weird Romance. The composer on that was Alan Menken best known for Little Shop of Horrors. And David also collaborated on two very well-received family versions of Les Miserables and The Phantom of the Opera. No, not the world-famous ones. David Spencer did the music and lyrics for very different versions, written expressly for TheaterWorks USA's Young Audiences program. Now, David's on the faculty at BMI's Lehman Engel Musical Theater Workshop, about which more unknown, and in 2002, he won the Richard Rogers Development Award for his musical adaptation of Aesop's fables called The Fabulist. In fact, David and co-writer Stephen Whitkin were on this show back on February 2nd, 2003. It was our 18th program. Amazing that more than 100 episodes have played between then and now. Anyway... They called in to talk about working on The Fabulist, and we played a couple of tracks from their concept CD of the show. Tonight, 
David is back, this time in person, in the studio, to talk about a different project, not just one particular musical, but all musicals in general. What makes them tick? How do writers and composers persevere through the first glimmer of an idea right through to opening night, which these days can take anywhere from three to five years, with 4,000 people standing in the middle, all of them saying no, or potentially worse, saying yes, but. Yes, but. Yes, you can have the revolving set, but you have to cast my girlfriend. Yes, I'll let you cut my big second act number, but you have to cut my co-star's big solo as well. Yes, we can take out an ad in the New York Times, but that won't leave us money for publicity anywhere else. There is no business like show business, even behind the scenes, before a production comes together. So David Spencer is here to share his hard-won wisdom and practical advice on musical making, advice that he's put into his new book, The Musical Theatre Writer's Survival Guide. It's published by Heinemann and goes on sale this Monday, July 25th, through all the usual venues, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and specialty bookstores. I skimmed through an advanced copy that David and the press people at Bono Brian Brown were kind enough to send me, and it looks real good, purposeful, informal, to the point, the Musical Theatre Writer's Survival Guide. Also, tonight, a segment I haven't done in a long while, Dave Gets Trivial. Just some odds and ends that struck me as funny or intriguing, or as David Letterman would say, <laughs> just plain goofy. Tonight, one of the strangest diseases I've ever heard of, and, speaking of theater, the synopsis to an off-off-Broadway show that will make you drop your jaw and close your legs real tight. But open your ears, because we have an hour of smart talk, silly talk, special talk, and music, from now till 8 o'clock on Dave's Gone By. Hosted by yours truly, Dave Lefkowitz, radio personality, theater critic, music lover, and trivial pursuer, we've got Spencer for Hire tonight. David Spencer, that is, talking about the higher art of musical theater. Gotta do one or two commercials first, just to keep you in suspense. Or is it Suspenser? And Dave Lefkowitz is here for the play-by-play, the play-by-play-by-play by Dave and his book of plays, Marriage, Babies, and the End of the World. Comedies, satirical, silly, sad, and strange, all collected in a great-looking book. Just $20 hardcover, $12 soft, 516-295-1511, or davesgoneby.com for Marriage, Babies, and the End of the World. Da-da-da-da-da-da! Play Dave! I've been telling you for months why you should use Hewlett Minuteman Press for all your copying and printing needs. But here's one of the owners, Mike Toron, to tell you why. Hi, how you doing? At Minuteman Press, our ultimate goal is service. We are your best source for the most complete line of printed products. You can check us out on the web at www.hewlett.minutemanpress.com. Do you believe in pod? Not God, pod. 
being able to download radio from the Internet and listen to a podcast anytime, anywhere. Well, now you can do it with Days Gone By. 20 full episodes downloadable from theaterpod.com. Even without an iPod, you can just listen right on your computer. Go to theaterpod.com for radio on demand and hours of Days Gone By to enjoy. Theaterpod.com is free because pod is low. Welcome back to Dave's Gone By on AM 1240 WGBB in Freeport, New York, and live streaming on the web at am1240wgbb.com. Now, my next guest was on this program about a year and a half ago. Uh, we spoke to him when he had a show called The Fabulist going on, and uh, he was working on that piece, and he's worked on a bunch of musical theater pieces, including probably his best-known Weird Romance, but he also uh, has done a musical of The Apprenticeship of Dougie Kravitz that we may or may not see in the future, and also some shows for family audiences. He is involved in shows called Phantom of the Opera and Les Miserables, but they're not the ones you might think they are. But anyway, he has many years of experience in writing and working on musical theater, and he's put that all together in a book about how to and how not to do the things to avoid when you are creating musical theater, both in artistic terms, when you're writing lyrics or when you're trying to compose music, what you do with a collaborator, and um, also dealing with producers and managers and then everything from the very beginning, the kernel of an idea for a show, all the way to, oh my gosh, what if they really want to produce the show in a big way? Now, the book is called The Musical Theater Writer's Survival Guide. And the fella is David Spencer. And David Spencer is with us here in the neighborhood. Hello, David. Hello. Welcome back. How are you? I'm Thank all right. You. How you doing? I'm good. I'm good. 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 So, then the genesis for this book was what? The genesis was I, um, <coughs> I'm faculty uh, and a member of the steering committee at the BMI Musical Theater Workshop, BMI Lehman Engel Musical Theater Workshop, and have mm-hmm. been for a number of years. Uh, I actually started there way back when Lehman was still alive and teaching. And eventually, I was asked to be on the on the on the committee, and subsequently on the faculty. Actually, sorry to make you detour, but why don't you give a very brief picture for our listeners? Who was Lehman Engel? Lehman Engel was known as the dean of. Broadway musical theater uh, musical directors, mm-hmm. and he conducted uh, I don't know how many shows, probably dozens over a career that started I think in the 30s. He sort of gave a symposium that BMI sponsored in the earlier mid 60s about musical theater, where some people were invited to come and listen to him talk and play stuff and get his reactions. And the event was so successful that it gradually begat a weekly meeting of writers. Right. And Lehman, for years and years, was the sort of one-man band who kind of ran everything uh, as the teacher. He was sort of Papa, actually a guy named Alan Becker, <coughs> who at the time was the head of musical theater for BMI. He was the administrative guy running things in the background. But, you know, it was Lehman's, it was Lehman's deal. And then when Lehman died, which was 1984-ish, something like that, uh, two or eighty-two, maybe. Mm-hmm. Um, then there was kind of a, a bunch of flurrying and scurrying, trying to figure out how the workshop would continue, and the people who were Layman's uh, intimates and most prominent students at the time, who uh, then were Maury Eston, Alan Menken, Ellen Fitzhugh, uh, Ed Kleban, 
Richard Enquist, a fellow named Carrie Gold, um, probably some others that I've left out. But they uh, kind of hunkered down and tried to figure out how to keep the workshop going. So they decided not to have a one-man band operation, and they split up the classes among several several instructors. And it took a couple of years for it to shake down into a new uh, and actually much improved and much more effective system. Oh, cool. Um, and by the way, people who are interested in, in all this and, and are curious about this can also... There was a musical made about this whole workshop, a wonderful... I it's a, it's, a, it's a really good musical, and it's kind of fun. Um, it was called The Class Act. called The Class Act. It was really about Ed Kleban. It was highly fictionalized in, in numerous aspects. One of the funniest was that um, uh, it, it opens up with Lehman Engel at Ed's memorial at the Schubert Theater, when in fact Ed died first. And oh. <laughs> it was, and, and Ed never had a memorial at the Schubert Theater. His oh. memorial was at the public. Um, well, ironically, sense, it was Ed who used his muscle as co-author of a chorus line to make sure that Lehman would have his memorial at the Schubert Theater. <laughs> <laughs> right, so, well, um, gosh, that is but, more uh, fiction than I thought. Well, also, the, it's, a, it's a lovely musical. Though, also, the, uh, the the little scenes in the class they uh, they show people being kind of very competitive, and, and it really isn't that. In fact, it's very much a supportive community. I am co-moderator of the second year with Pat Cook and Rick Fryer. Mm-hmm. And I also uh, moderate and put together the master classes. Um, the regular songwriting classes, you know, people bring in individual songs and get feedback as they're working on a project. The master classes, um, certain projects are developed to a point where bringing in individual songs isn't as helpful anymore, and you really need to present a chunk of material. Okay. You know, so things can be perceived in a larger context, and so we select projects that we think are are worthy or well developed or both. Um, Have there been any musicals say that people would know of in the last few years that went through this process? The master classes. Um, uh, that's a little too soon because those are only about three years old. But in terms of musicals, yeah, Avenue Q. Ah, for okay. one thing. And then uh, those are the guys who did the foreword for your book. Uh, yes, indeed. Yeah. Yes, indeed. Nice little segue there. And uh, yeah, uh, Jeff Marks and Bobby Lopez. Their success was unusually meteoric. It usually doesn't happen quite that fast, but they went through the program and, you know, they... And it's a wonderful musical. ...really relied on the class, though, as the foreword says. And uh, it's really interesting, you know, that they uh, they paid that much attention and it um, it was certainly not the only thing by any means. They are very talented guys, but they will freely admit and have done publicly that the workshop was a huge help to them. Now, I assume the um, workshop informed your writing of this book. Of it course. did. It did. I just wanted to finish sure, up sure. Uh, the master class thing. The, the uh, master classes, what, how that works, I kind of moderate like Charlie Rose, although I talk less, and we bring in um, masters to essentially listen and comment. So it, it really is a master class, and we invite uh, the workshop members to participate as an audience, really. And we've had Stephen Sondheim was at the last one. Um, the one before that was Richard Maltby and, and David Shire. Sure. We had our first master class with Sheldon Harnick and John Cantor, so we wow. really have some nice... Yeah. Um, well, it's a rather small field when you come to think of it. I mean, you it, think of the people who I do suppose, this. I suppose. Um, although I think because of uh, our workshop, certainly... Um, which is free, by the way. You know, just uh, anybody who attends just attends on the basis of... Is you know, the audition. at 5? No, it is uh, Mondays at 4 oh. for the advanced. It always sort of was. That's another fiction. It was never Fridays at 5. Monday at 9, off to the office. Monday at 6, back from the office. Tuesday at 9, 
more of the same, alas. Friday at four, Friday at four, Lamest of Vine, musical comedy class. Monday at ten, called my composer, Thursday at six, found my composer, Friday at three, yes, I'll be I haven't presented a song yet. What was I thinking of? You were thinking of your song. Wednesday at nine. Sensual pleasure. Thursday at nine. Periodontist. Friday at nine. Office, but not for long. Friday at four. Friday at four. Gather the clan. Beat to the high. Palpably. Tangibly. Briefly alive and Um, Mondays at four for the advanced, six for the first year and the librettists, which is run by Nancy Galladay. On um, Tuesday is around 5.30 is the second year class. Periodically, we sort of look at who's, you know, the progress of the people who are in it and make decisions about that. Sure. But there is no uh, tuition. There's no fee. It's, wow. uh, and it always has been free. And it's, it's, it's a service that's offered by BMI. But anyway, uh, how, the, how the genesis of the book was, I didn't even realize I was writing a book at first. I also edit the BMI Workshop newsletter. Cool. And I had been, over the course of several years, writing a bunch of articles. Uh, some in series, some one-shots. And eventually, uh, I just kind of looked at the hard drive on my, on my laptop and I went, you know, I got a bunch of things here that aren't doing anything for a living. They existed for about, you know, right. the length of, you know, the shelf life of the the newsletter article that they uh, they were written for, and then they, you know, then they went into an archive, and if people asked for them, I'd send it to them. But I thought, you know, this is, everybody's telling me this is very useful stuff, and maybe it ought to be out there more permanently. So I assembled uh, I assembled the articles that I had written. Mm-hmm. Uh, in a pitch, uh, I would I would wind up writing twice again. I had half the book ready, more or less, when I started, but I would write another half. And um, Jeff Sweet, who we both know, the playwright and teacher yeah. and critic, he had several years before offered to introduce me to his editor at, at Heinemann, and I called him up and I said, is the, is, the, is the offer still good? He said, absolutely. He right. read an email, he introduced me, I pitched the book, and the next thing I knew, I had a contract. Well, and Jeff wrote the Dramatist Toolkit, which I guess is right. for playwrights, mm-hmm. what Musical Theater Writer's Survival Guide could yeah. be for... He wrote a, well, a, a sequel to that, too, and I can't remember, oh, but okay. uh, yeah. or maybe that was the sequel, but I know he's written two books for them, yeah. and he's an excellent writer. So let's, let's get into the book a, a, a little bit of, of what you're telling people that hasn't been in other books about writing for musical theater. That were, you know, I know Lehman Engel wrote books. I know, you know, there are certainly books on the shelves about this. Lehman wrote some books. I have to say that um, I admire a lot of what Lehman wrote in his books, but 
there was a degree to which he was limited in that he himself wasn't a writer. So he he was sort of an insider and yet an outsider at the same time. Mm. So there are things that, to me as a writer, are perfectly obvious that he never got. Like, he, he went on at length in one of his books about he, he never understood how how Man of La Mancha could have been the classic that everybody loves because he was so offended by its sentimentality. But in fact, if you put aside the sentimentality and just look at the structure, it is absolutely classic. You have the hero on a quest and the things against yeah. him, and you know, and it just follows all the classic steps and it has all the classic ingredients. So, um, and what this book does is it looks, for, for example, in terms of the art of it, it looks at what are the classic ingredients of successful musicals and by successful I don't necessarily uh, or just mean they made a lot of money and everybody got rich I mean they stayed in the literature I mean they get done everywhere they get you know uh, uh, they get produced everywhere Uh, their professional life ends and then they're in stock and amateur forever Um, so it's a look at that and what's interesting uh, indeed fascinating is that about conservatively I'd say 90% of all successful musicals follow a I hesitate to call it a template because you don't want to talk about cookie-cutterness with musicals because they can be as wide-ranging as anything else. But they do follow... Uh, they do have certain ingredients, and I think the ingredients happen because it's such an elevated art form. And I've not known that to be codified before in print, uh, broken down into you know, really understanding what the elements are. Um, well, let's, why don't you pick, say... a, a I'm actually holding the book, The Musical Theater Writer's Survival Guide. And I'm actually putting on my glasses now so I can read my own prose. But what I'd love to know is, I mean, there are shows that are perfectly watchable and whatever, and they just don't sort of happen. And then there are others that, as you say, are classics. I'd love to be able to define how one show really hits all the, and becomes special. And then you have, say, a Frank Wildhorn show that, that seems to that has a plot, that has songs, that tries to follow A, B, and C, and yet the critics don't like it, the audiences don't come, and it may vanish forever. Well, I, I sort of don't want to talk about, at least in this context, of a specific writer and say, well, this is why the guy failed. Or a specific show. Um, well, you can, you can pick a show by the same writers of a classic. Let's say if you wanted to go with and, a, and a indeed, Jerry Herman plot. And indeed, know. those are the shows where they did not follow... Mm. Uh, well, I won't say follow because you know they're experimenting and things aren't codified. Who makes up the rules? These are these are not really rules, but they are as principles distilled from decades and decades and decades of musicals that exist and prove sure. the point. But indeed, when you look at the the musicals of established writers that you know go off the rails or don't have a commercial success as much as we love them, they are in fact the musicals that don't follow the the principles of what is traditionally commercially successful. Okay. And, uh, for example, uh, much as I love Pacific Overtures, it is one of my favorite musicals in the world, by the way, it's this big panorama thing. It doesn't really follow one character right. all the way through. I agree. It's it about like, work, ultimately. Right. And then you have something like Sweeney Todd, Gypsy, you know, with the driven hero who is... Uh, uh, who needs to accomplish something, and the whole show is 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 motored by that, 
And those are the shows, in fact. A funny thing happened on the way to the forum, all about Pseudolus' quest for freedom. Right. So all of those shows that fall into that category in the Sondheim um, catalog, right. those are the ones that are the big commercial successes for him. Yeah, but he is such an experimenter. You know, Sondheim is not fair because he, he just, he'll jump, he'll take, I mean, if you look at Sunday in the Park with George... You know, the first act it's an extraordinary show. Ever, but and by the way, and by the way, follow. nobody says that those musicals weren't necessary. In fact, I don't think there's a there's probably not a Sondheim musical that we're not all the better for, and and, mm. and haven't uh, somehow been able to draw something uh, from stylistically like Company or or um, Follies. Or I, I remember reading a very convincing essay by. Um, Oh, I can't remember his name. Mar- Martin Gottfried, hmm. who uh, said that he thought that Pacific Overtures was even more pervasive an influence on the musical theater than a chorus line. And in fact, uh, well, they were in the same season, so they probably didn't cross-pollinate. But I mean, I think he's right. I, I certainly don't mean to, to uh, cast those musicals in any kind of a diminished light. What I am saying, though, is that for a writer who is not established, who is looking to get a show on, get it produced, have it have some kind of longevity, have it be attractive to producers, critics, audiences, to have the best possible shot at that. Um, then I think the more you have, for example, the hero who's on a quest, who drives the show. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's one thing. Uh, let me get to the others here. Um, but then again, lots of flop shows have had that. Well, they have that, but there are other things too. You also have to be um, character-driven as opposed to plot-driven. Okay. You also need to have supporting characters that are not only interesting but functional. In other words, if they're there, they're there for a reason. Okay. You also need not to drop the plot tension. There are musicals where the hero goes away and then other things happen and you just lose whatever is driving the show. That happens. uh, somebody very smart once said, when your main character leaves the stage, the other characters better be worried about him. Hmm. That's very good. Um, you want conflict subsequently that kicks in early and doesn't resolve until the end. Um, okay. You also have to set up what are called your permissions. In other words, permission to be funny, permission to be dramatic, permission to do whatever, permission to follow a dramatic theme, just so you have a lens by which the audience perceives everything. Um, this is really important because, for example, in a straight play, you can take a while to introduce where you're going because people come on, they talk in dialogue, even if it's stylized, it's some kind of emulation of real time. But a musical is compressed. Uh-huh. And in compression, uh, there's a kind of speed. And in that speed comes a heightened kind of storytelling and so the audience expectations are sped up subsequently and so you have to be very very clear right at the top what you're doing what you're going to explore for the evening um, because that's what the audience is prepared to follow and if that is not clear uh, as so many of the musicals you're talking about that are watchable but they just don't happen I would say 50% of the time or more it's because the permissions aren't set up properly, and so you don't know exactly what ride you're on. For example, um, one of the most famous stories, which I'm sure you know and have probably even referred to, is what happened out of town with Funny Thing Happened on the Way to the Forum, when they talked about, uh, you know, they, they opened up with this, this lilting little melody called Love is in the Air. The audience was baffled. And then Jerome Robbins came in and said, well, you have to give the audience permission to laugh. Subsequently, 
comedy tonight. Right. Uh, I mean, that song and suddenly it was this. They were laughing immediately, and boom. Yeah. yeah, I mean that's the most classic and simple yeah. example, but there are others example. that are, there, there are others that are more complex. But it's still about setting up the path so that the audience doesn't have to figure out. For example, I can think of um, a musical I won't name right now, but it's a musical I admire a great deal. But you don't know at the top exactly who your hero is, and mm. so you spend like the first half hour just kind of getting a panorama of characters, and then you go, "Oh, that's whose story it is." Now I know what ride I'm on, but I'm too late. Well, that could be Oklahoma, actually. But yeah. <laughs> so that, those are the things that the book goes into. The book also goes into um, what you need to keep in mind when you are collaborating. Um, the principles and steps for keeping a collaboration healthy. Um, the importance of... I mean, it sounds very simple, but... It's, it's amazing the kind of things that can flummox open communication because we're doing something that's so personal and because we feel exposed and because, you know, you can feel threatened and there's all kinds of pressures that come on you and you don't quite know how to balance them and you could find yourself doing something to threaten a collaboration without even meaning to. Don't set up a meeting, you know, that's going to be about the fate of your show somewhere without discussing it with your collaborators. Don't give out a CD without discussing, you know. Hmm. Uh, I mean, I actually know of an example where, where, where this happened, where somebody had arranged a, a, a reading, primarily for the benefit of producer X, and his collaborator decided to invite producer Y along, too. And I that mean, was just... Well, know. producer X didn't expect anybody else to be there. You uh, know, so that kind of stuff. Yeah. Um, I also talk about um, how you... Try to find the best possible director for your show. Um, it's so important to really, really, really listen to what they say at the first meeting because generally the director who will not ultimately work for you will give you a clue right at the top. And it's, mm. not, it's not because he's a bad guy or a bad woman or insincere or anything like that, but other than acting, directing is perhaps the most instinctive and impulsive of the theatrical arts because no matter how much preparation the director does before he walks into the rehearsal room, he also has to react yeah. to all those elements, you know, spontaneously as he's sort of traffic managing and combining and, and all of that. And so at your meeting, too, when he's reacting to you, that's a fairly, fairly accurate barometer of the directorial instincts at play. And it's about how to listen to that. It's also about when you're not sure what to do to get more information, which is research as productions. They're on, you know, if they are on tape at Lincoln Center, yeah. you get to watch them, you know, and a production will tell you a lot more than any meeting, you know, if, you know what kind of a touch you're looking for. But it, it's generally about gathering the resources that are available, understanding how to read signals that you might not know how to understand if you haven't been burned a couple of times, right. you know. Um, and I've really never seen that kind of thing talked about before and I was uh, you know when I was looking for the celeb quotes for the cover you know I gave it to among others I gave it to Richard Maltby and, and what I got back almost made me cry because um, it was exactly you know the kind of response I would have wanted a professional to give which was I've never seen anything like this before this is going to save you all kinds of uh, well speaking of the writing of the thing you also have a, a chapter in there of like rules for writing the book of, of a musical. Well, I went, I, went, I went into some of that just now. Uh, those are the principles of, of libretto. Yeah. But, uh, you know, it, and, and so um, uh, that 
As I say, that, that's kind of covered. Uh, we, we, we talked about yeah. that. But uh, there's also, uh, I do go into the elements of music and lyrics. Right. That the ABA uh, thing, literally down to the syllable. Down to the syllable. I also talk about um, certain concepts that I think are actually more complicated than we sometimes think they are. For example, there is a rule, a general rule, that self-pitying songs don't really work unless they're comedic or unless the self-pity is somehow earned because we've been long enough with the character on the journey. But I actually looked at that a little further, and virtually all the songs I found that were self-pitying that we tolerate as audiences, they're actually not as self-pitying as all that. They seem like, on the surface, a character is feeling sorry for himself or herself. But if you actually examine the dramatic moment, that self-pity is either a weapon or it's a motivator. For example, if you look at um, Aldonza in uh, Man of La Mancha, mm-hmm. when she's uh, giving him all her backstory about she was born on a dung heap to die on a dung heap, and you know, so why do I not think that she's just beating her breast and being a pain in the butt? It's because what she's really trying to do is to get a rise out of Coyote, and the more he stands implacable, the more she tries to shatter him, you know, and oh. and so it's and, and what, what's going on is in fact not a self-pity whale, it's a very active contest of wills. She is trying so hard to shock him, and he's unshockable. And that's what gets her angrier and angrier, and that's why the moment is so good. It's the same thing with, for example, if you look at Little Women in uh, Annie, which is, of course, funny. But it's not, not the musical Little Women. But the, but the uh, uh, I mean, did I say Little Women? I meant uh, Little Girls. Okay. Little Girls. Little Girls, right. It really isn't just this is who I am and I'm feeling sorry for myself, you know because of where it's placed and because of how she sings it, that this is her motivator, that she's feeling overwhelmed and she wants out. That's what the song is telling you. So, in fact, it's active. Well, it's like Adelaide in uh, Guys and Dolls. A person can develop a cold. I mean, you can say, oh, you know, all these things he's doing to me. But, but it's at active. the same time, it's, it, it's, like, it's, very, it's very, very active because it's pointing forward. Yeah. An oft-taught and very true principle that ideally, well, really always a song can only be about one thing however that gets tricky too because the more sophisticated the songwriter the more sophisticated the application for example uh, you look at God That's Good in Sweeney Todd there are so many things going on but they all feed into the central plot point which is the career advancement of Sweeney and Mrs. Lovett you know they're just different points of view on it and how Sondheim accomplishes that is, is fascinating but it's still a big song about one thing can we um, hear an example of one of your songs that kind of demonstrates one of your points? And, and was I will, in fact, uh, yeah, I'll, I'll tell you, I'll tell a story on myself, actually. When we were doing the, the very musical that you talked about, The Fabulous, mm-hmm. the opening number at the time, that was our second reading, it was a number uh, called They're Only Human. Uh, this is a, the musical, it's an epic fable about Aesop, and uh, there's a Greek chorus of animals who are animals from his fables. And this song, essentially, they were singing about um, the foibles of humanity because they're looking at the, what is supposed to be the impending execution of Aesop. Who, uh, and they, uh, they want to try and rescue him. And how can humanity kill him because he was such a good guy and he was so wise and he taught them so much? And it set up a musical about the foibles of humanity and learning to accept your own flawed humanity. And yet they were very important plot points that just were not landing with the audience. Among them was the importance of the god Apollo as the antagonist, 
who is really never seen in the show. He's just this presence that people talk about. That never landed. Another thing that never quite landed was a very important plot point that uh, has to do with the end of the show, which is that Aesop finally gets pissed off enough to not tell a fable. Fables have protected him because it allows him to tell the truth without pointing fingers and naming names. Yeah. But he finally gets so angry that he tells the truth flat out without, without any, any kind of embellishment and subsequently is framed and arrested and right. you know, sentenced to death. And I debated this with my collaborator, Stephen Whitkin, um, because it's also the end of the novel by John Bornholt. And something about it felt like kind of a throwaway. It, it, it never quite landed for me, even when I read the source material. But Stephen was insistent, and I think correctly that it, we not change it, but I, I didn't know what to do about it. And in the aftermath of that second uh, work um, reading, um, mm-hmm. I was thinking about it. I said, you know, if that's such an important point, and we're heading toward it, I have to be working backwards from that. Everything in the show has to point to that. Ah. So I kind of did a backwards tracking, and I said, oh, my God, it's the wrong opening number. And if it's the wrong opening number, it's the wrong dramatic theme. And I called Stephen, and I said, you know what? This is not a show about learning to accept your own flawed humanity. This is a show about the truth, how you tell it, to whom, to what consequence, you know, what happens if you forget to do it tactfully. Uh, yeah. And, and uh, once I understood that, then I understood about setting up other things like the god Apollo. And so all of that stuff was front-loaded in the new opening number, which I have for you, and you will see how it's com- and it completely changed. When we did a third reading, it completely changed how the audience perceived everything. And it solved a bunch of other problems in the show as well. Well, cool. We're going to hear, uh, to, to end the segment, um, that opening number from The Fabulous. Well, what is the song actually called? Uh, the new song is called You Can Always Find a Fable. You Can Always Find a Fable, and you can find not only a fable, but several fables and lots of really good and constructive and practical advice in the Musical Theater Writer's Survival Guide, written by David Spencer, S-P-E-N-C-E-R, if you're looking for it. As I said, it has a foreword by Robert Lopez and Jeff Marks, who co-created Avenue Q. It's from Heinemann Books and available all the usual book places. Uh, should be. Good. Not willing. <laughs> Yeah, and also online and, and stuff. I mean, do you have a website of your own? Or uh, there is a website. Um, I, I have my you know, my drama critic website, which is www.ilsay.com. That's spelled A-I-S-L-E-S-A-Y.com. There's a page for the book off of Ilsay. So you go to Ilsay.com and then type in ny-guide, G-U-I-D-E, capital letters, dot <laughs> HTML, small letters. Actually, you know what? You don't even have to listen to all this. If you go to, the, if you go to ILSA.com, there are links to the pages. Sounds good. And, and, and you'll find it. So let's get fabling, thanks to David Spencer. Thank you. on a journey into the light. In the name of Apollo, I bestow upon you a truth. I am... Nutty as baklava. People aren't good with the truth. Remember what happened to you-know-who, you-know-where, you-know-why. But we are a Greek chorus, and we're here to tell the truth about a man of truth. So, ladies and gentlemen, if the truth be told... All right. 
I am an animal. There, you heard it from the horse's mouth. Now that the cat is out of the bag, I am a dog. A bird in the hand comes from a wonderful fable. My favorite fable? The lion and the mouse. And you're not looking at the mouse. Fable, a metaphorical story meant to teach a lesson about the human condition. When the truth is hard to tell, for it will be hard to take. When you know you must be bold, get it out and get it told, for the sake of what's at stake. When the truth that sets you free, may as likely get you killed. You can always find a fable upon which to build. And the fable builds to a moral like Actions speak louder than words. Beauty is in the eye of the beholder. It's quality, not quantity. Honesty is the best policy. Really? <clears throat> you have the worst dog breath. When you must point out what's wrong. In a way that never shames. When the target's very high and you must expose the lie. But you dare not name the names. When you must preserve your hide While not hiding, you're a human You can always find a fable and an animal To speak for every human The tortoise and the hare The fox and the grape The ant and the grasshopper The dog and the manger The city mouse and the country mouse The eagle and the fox The horse and the stag A ghost and a mouse and a mouse A
If I were a rich man, I could do the Dave's Gone Buy show for years and years and never have to worry about money. But that's not the way things have worked out. So, I need your help. You can help me by helping yourself by advertising or sponsoring segments on Dave's Gone By. It's easy, it's cheap. Just go to davesgoneby.com and see the rate card, davesgoneby.com, and bring your message to my listeners and make us both rich. Big house with the roof. Okay, listen to me. No, I mean, listen to me on Compact Disc, where bunches of past episodes of Dave's Gone By are yours to hear over and over again. Comedy sketches like the Baghdad Elections and Handyman Yoni, guests like Neil Sedaka and Karen Grasley, puns, politics, and punchlines, all just $14 a disc, shipping included. Visit davesgoneby.com for all the details, or call 516-295-1511 for me on CD. What's playing on Broadway? I'll tell you what's playing on Broadway, and I'll do it by checking Performing Arts Insider. Off-Broadway, off-off-Broadway, off-off-off-Broadway. You keep adding offs, they'll keep adding listings. Who's in the cast? What's it about? Is it good? Can you bring the kids? Performing Arts Insider is the theater guide. Call 516-295-1511, 516-295-1511, or go to TotalTheater.com and click on Performing Arts Arts Insider. Hi, this is David Spencer, author of the new book, The Musical Theater Writer's Survival Guide, and you are listening to Dave's Gone By. Dave gets trivial. Dave gets trivial. Welcome back to Dave's Gone By. Time for a segment I haven't done in ages, but I kind of miss. It's called Dave Gets Trivial. Sometimes it's where I get interested in a subject and dig up a little research on it to share with all of you. Other times, I just come across some weird or goofy bit of trivia, and I've got no other place to talk about it, so here's as good as any. First, we get trivial with illness. What could be more fun than making fun of the sick? But I discovered the most amazing disease. Well, I shouldn't say I discovered it. I've uncovered it. I've noticed its existence, and now I'm going to share it with you. Come close to the speaker. Don't worry, it's not catching. My wife and I were surfing a medical website because her aunt has been in the hospital, and we wish Aunt Helen a speedy recovery, by the way, but we were researching stuff about her condition when we came across this huge list of aches and ailments, everything from bronchial to venereal to inguinal to the common cold. And one of the sicknesses on this list I'd never heard of before. It's quite rare, it's quite serious, but you wouldn't necessarily know that from the name, M-S-U-D, M-S-U-D, which stands for, and I am not kidding, maple syrup urine disease. Let us digest that for a moment. Or, um, not. Wrong word. Maple syrup urine disease, and its corollary, intermittent maple syrup urine disease. It has to do with an inability to metabolize amino acids, and it's actually deadly if untreated in newborns and infants. The name comes from the fact that a telltale sign of MSUD is the baby's pee smells like maple syrup. I don't know. Anybody going into a bathroom after I've used it probably thinks that I have Armenian death camp poop disease, but we won't go there. Instead, we'll go to our next trivial pursuit, 
courtesy of one of the theatrical fringe festivals happening in New York this summer. Now, you're always going to find funny titles and zany plots in fringe festivals. That's part of their appeal. They're going to showcase stuff you wouldn't imagine on a Broadway stage. Granted, town made the leap from fringe to a two-year Broadway run, but it's still unlikely that 42nd Street will get some of the shows in this year's New York International Fringe Festival. Stuff like A Lesbian in the Pantry, The Monster Under My Bed Drank My Vodka, and, here's the longest title of the festival, Sex with Jake Gyllenhaal and Other Fables of the Northeast Corridor. Actually, it's a pretty tame crop of shows and titles this time around. A couple of F-words, a few anti-Bush satires, the usual hip-hop monologues and gay melodramas. But I did notice one show that has a synopsis I could not ignore. Understand that after years of reading titles and plot lines for Fringe Productions, I've heard it all. My eyebrow might go up for a second, but my cornea has already moved on to the next listing. And it almost did with this one, but not quite. Maybe because two years ago I had opera fanatic Stefan Zucker on the show. He's an expert in bel canto singing and operatic tenors of a time when expressive singing was very different, much higher, almost feminine, sometimes like a chicken squawk. Anyway, that's one reason I was struck by the title of this fringe production, The Last Castrato, a play by Andy Enninger, directed by Brad McIntyre. Here's the synopsis of The Last Castrato. Joseph was born without a penis. Okay, as synopses go, it doesn't get much better than that. In fact, it's almost a shame to waste that on a little off-off-Broadway show. Joseph was born without a penis. That could actually be the first line of the great American novel. I realize the great American novel is Moby Dick, but hey, that fits too, doesn't it? Joseph was born without a penis. He loves Elena. Well, she has a problem already, doesn't she? Joseph loves Elena, says the synopsis, but she was born, quote, with her skin inside out. Elena was born with her skin inside out. What that exactly means, not to mention how they would represent that on stage. Okay, high concept here. Boy, no penis. Girl, no epidermis. However, she apparently is blessed with a beautiful singing voice to balance her deformity, unquote. I'm reading this from the official synopsis. And this is being put on, by the way, by Audacity Productions. Talk about an apt name. And the plot concludes, quote, While Joseph had no talent to make up for his missing member, dot, 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 and that's it. What a tease! A cliffhanger! Or a cliff-no-hanger, considering the anatomical deficiencies of poor Joseph. There is an implicit however in that statement. It's in the ellipsis. Although Joseph had no God-given talent to compensate for his God-ungiven pickle, dot, dot, dot. Now, if you go to the website for The Last Castrato, audacityproductions.net, they do have one more sentence after that. It's a quote from poor Joe, who's philosophical about living meat-free seven days a week. He says, quote, A penis 
in terms of artistic merit, is worth nothing. Wow! Notice how much more poetic it is when it's parentheticized like that. He could have just said, in terms of artistic merit, a penis is worth nothing. But no, you can tell he's given this a lot of thought, because he starts with his penis, something he can't actually do in real life. Except this isn't real life, it's a very strange piece of theater. A penis, comma, in terms of artistic merit, comma, is worth nothing, period. Talk about a double standard, though. I mean, Eve Ensler makes a career out of the vagina monologues, but my little one-eyed friend doesn't even get the critical recognition of a disco album. You know, ordinarily I would feel sorry for a castrato, but saying something like that, and wait a minute, a castrato, that has nothing to do with a penis. It's the other bits. Priests in the days of yore would take the best singing choir boys and hack off their onions, but they'd leave the sausage, for reasons that have become obvious, but gosh, an artistically worthless penis? What about puppetry of the penis? What about Michelangelo's David's penis? Or what about the fine fashion designs of Vera Wang? Or the way E. Power Biggs would play Bach cantatas on his massive organ? My dear listeners, I know this all sounds trivial, but... Oh, wait a minute. This segment is trivial. It's called Dave Gets Trivial. Sorry, I got a little worked up over the whole castration thing. It's obviously a sensitive issue with men, and I personally apologize to any castrati out there I might have offended. Please, don't take it hard. Not that you're able to. What I mean is... You all know my sense of humor. It's a little nuts. And speaking of little nuts, no, no, I won't go there. Please, don't call the station. I don't want you to get all testy, or no testies in your particular case. No, I'm kidding, I'm kidding. If management thinks I'm offending people here, I will get sacked, which would probably make you jealous since you don't have sacks of your own. But seriously... If I lose this job, I'll have to sell the family jewels, and... Oh, let's go to commercial. WGBB, the place for you and me. We're one big family. And let me make one thing clear. There's so many shows to hear, like Joyce Keller, the radio psychic. Wednesdays, 11 p.m., she's one fine, uncanny chick. And Friday's at 6, if you can't get a date, there's Bonnie D. Graham telling you how to mate. Saturday nights, the Mike and Jimmy show, for rock and roll comedy, the place to go. And make sure to listen on Sundays, too. At 7 p.m., it's Joe Salzo's Worldview. So many programs on 1240 AM. If you have half a brain, you tune in to them. Yes, WGBB is the place to listen all week long. Joyce Keller, Wednesdays at 11. Long Island's Dating with Bonnie D. Graham. Friday nights at 6. Mikey and Jimmy. And politics on Worldview with Joe Salone. Sundays at 7. So if you love Dave's Gone By, give these other shows a try. They serve your community. If you listen, you'll know why. They're groovy and that's no lie. Come on. Come on now, don't be shy. This is David Spencer, and you are listening to Dave's Gone By on AM 1240 WGBB. Hi, this is Dave Lefkowitz of Dave's Gone By, reminding you to tune in every Thursday night at 8 
and 11 Eastern Time for the best of Dave's Gone By on Live365.com and the special channel DFSX Radio. All you gotta do is go to my website, davesgoneby.org, click on the link, and you can hear a classic episode of Dave's Gone By every Thursday night, 8 and 11. Go to dfsxradio.com for more of me. Welcome back to Dave's Gone By. Big thank you to David Spencer by his Heinemann book, The Musical Theater Writer's Survival Guide, wherever musical theater survival guides are sold. We'll go out with a closing number from his show, The Fabulist. Before then, gotta thank program director Tom Ross. Gotta thank my wonderful, amazing wife, Joyce. Big thanks to all of you for listening. Don't forget, there's more of me on WGBB tonight at 9, hosting Fill Her Up, an hour of music, including Juliana Hatfield, Rufus Wainwright, and the Rolling Stones. Also, listen to a vintage episode of Dave's Gone By on DFSXRadio.com. Thursday nights at 8 and 11 Eastern, they play the best of Dave's Gone By. Go to davesgoneby.org and just click the link in the upper right-hand corner right now. You can also hear entire episodes of Dave's Gone By on theaterpod.com anytime you want, completely free. I've got about a dozen shows you can listen to streaming on your computer or download to your iPod. Theaterpod.com Please drop me a line if you like the show tonight. Dave's Gone By at AOL.com and please come back next Thursday, July 28th, 7 p.m., for another edition of Dave's Gone By. Until then, don't miss your days going by. This is Dave Lefkowitz. Good night. Let's give the fabulous another fabulous and, and gone by. If this is my last moment, let me have it as a man who is finally free! As Aesop took his final act as a free man... A shaft of light pierced the sky. Ah! And the golden chariot of Apollo swoops down from above and caught the falling dwarf who never touched the ground. The god of truth and poetry and light carries him up, up into posterity. Ah! Where Aesop and his fables live to this very day. And he changed the way the 